Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Hope that you're well and staying safe. It's a joy to be with you again and have this opportunity to speak uh, with you uh, from God's Word. Today, we're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke. And so this morning, we come to chapter 19. So let me encourage you to go ahead and grab your Bible or your electronic device, whatever you use to go to God's Word, and turn to Luke chapter 19. And we're going to be looking today at the first 10 verses. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. He entered Jericho, that's Jesus, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray once more, shall we? Gracious Father, as we come now to your word, we ask, O Lord, that its teaching may drop upon us as the rain. May your name be proclaimed, and may you, O Christ, be made much of. In your name we pray these things. Amen. On a Saturday afternoon, a number of months ago, I spent the afternoon playing golf at the little course that I learned the game on. It had been years since I had been there, and um, I haven't gotten a whole lot better uh, since then. Those were in the high school days. But as I was there, um, a particular memory came flooding back to me as I made my way down the cart path of the Seventh Fairway. For off to the right, there's a river. And with the rains, the water was very turbulent, uh, very choppy, very much like it was that day in 1974 when some friends of mine decided that it would be a fun thing to do uh, to tube down that river. And I suppose that it was fun until one of the guys fell off the tube, went under the water, and didn't come up. At least not at first. A search party was very quickly organized in our little town. People began to come with ropes and ladders and all sorts of, of equipment. And one vivid memory I, I had of that day, and it was just came back to me when I was playing golf that afternoon, were the trucks. There were these red 
trucks and there were little ones and there were big ones and almost every one of them had painted on their doors these words, Great Falls Rescue Squad. Later that evening, about nightfall, a member of the Great Falls Rescue Squad found uh, my friend uh, Danny Brunson and plucked him out of that river and from danger. I tell you that story because it's the idea of rescue that comes to mind this morning as we read this text. It's in this passage that we are reminded of Jesus's purpose in coming to earth. And you see it right here in verse 10 of our passage. When Jesus, speaking of himself, says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And what I'd like for us to see this morning from today's text, the, the, the big idea, if you will, is that Jesus is on a rescue mission. And it's a rescue mission that's focused in three areas. We printed those in, you, in your worship folder this morning for you to refer to. But it's a rescue mission that's focused on the lost. It's a rescue mission that's initiated by God. And it's a rescue mission that's marked by changed lives. What I want to do this morning is kind of work our way through this text, make some application along the way, but then at the end, kind of step back and apply what we've learned from this text within the context of what I heard somebody the other day refer to as the great lockdown of 2020. I thought it had only been eight weeks or so, but Pastor David reminded me it's been about nine or ten now that we've been quarantined. And it's been difficult. And now there's even talk about a recession. What's God up to in this? Well, I happen to believe that he has a purpose in it all. And this passage that we're going to study this morning is quite useful in helping us, what I've heard David refer to is from time to time is, is not wasting this time. And I think it's helpful to us in that way that, that, that we not waste the great lockdown of 2020. Let's start this morning by, by talking, first of all, about this rescue mission of Jesus. And the first thing I'd like for you to notice is that the rescue mission of Jesus is one that is focused on the lost. The idea of lostness and God's attitude toward lost people is all through the Bible. For instance, in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 50, verse 6, it says, My people have become lost sheep. In Ezekiel 34, verse 16, you hear God saying things like, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. It is this idea of lostness and God's attitude toward it that was very much in the mind of our Lord when he came to earth. We've seen it, haven't we, in our study of the Gospel of Luke. For instance, in chapter 15, we, we saw 
it in the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son. We saw it a few weeks ago from chapter 18 with the story of the Pharisees and the, and the tax collector. And when I was last with you, the story of the rich young ruler. And last week, David talked about the, the blind beggar. In all of those situations, we were introduced to people who were out of sorts. They, they just weren't where they should be, were they? And when you think about it, that's, the, that's what we mean when we refer to something as being lost. It's a matter of something not being where it's supposed to be. The other day, I couldn't find my car keys. That's a common occurrence in my life. They were lost. What do I mean by that? Well, they weren't where they were supposed to be. It was obviously the key's fault. It wasn't my fault. It was the key's fault. But, but they just weren't where they were supposed to be. And that's what we mean when we talk about lostness. And that, quite frankly, is what we have here in this very familiar story of Zacchaeus. We often remember this story as the subject of cute little songs we sang when we were children in Sunday school about Zacchaeus being a wee little man. And those are cute songs, and I'm sure my grandchildren have, have sang them as I did as a child. We also want to oftentimes make light of the fact that, that this guy was a little fella, and we get a lot of mileage out of that. And yet, there's a seriousness about this story that, that we need to see. For you see, Zacchaeus was lost. He was out of sorts. He wasn't where he should and needed to be. Who was this fellow, Zacchaeus? Well, we're told here in verse 2 that, that he was a tax collector. And not just any tax collector, mind you, but he was a chief tax collector. Tax collectors, as we've learned, were despised by people. They were recognized as extortionists and seen in the eyes of Jewish people as crooks and thieves. And Zach here, he was a chief tax collector, which meant he was the head of an entire tax district, which probably made life even more miserable for him. He didn't get invited out very often to go eat at Zaxby's. He, he didn't get invited into many people's home for roast pot. In fact, in verse 7, we're told that that Jesus, when Jesus came into his house, the people of Jericho even said, he's gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus was lost. But unlike the rich young ruler, he knew he was lost. Oh, from a material perspective, he had it all. We're told that he was rich. But something was out of whack in this man's life. He he hears Jesus is going to be coming through Jericho. And in verse 3, we're told that Zacchaeus is quite interested in seeing Jesus. So in verse 4, he, he runs ahead. He climbs a sycamore tree and he waits for Jesus to pass by. Now, I want you to really get this. That's a big deal. It'd be sort of like a guy being dressed in a Brooks Brothers suit running down Peachtree Avenue and climbing a light pole to wait on somebody to come. It was very unusual. But this guy's very interested in Jesus. Why? Perhaps he had heard of Jesus. 
Maybe he had been to the tax collector's convention and he knew this guy named Levi who had met Jesus and been met by Jesus and and he had been changed and maybe Zacchaeus had heard about that and he wanted to know more. Or maybe he had just grown tired of, of being shunned and hated by his neighbors and the loneliness that no doubt came from that. Maybe he was just sick and tired of not being where he knew he should be. What I want you to see this morning, brothers and sisters, is Zacchaeus is the kind of folks that Jesus came for. When Jesus visited Levi's house and he was hanging out with many tax collectors and many sinners, the text says, the scribes and the Pharisees said, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinful people, for messed up people. He came for people who were traitors and murderers and crooks and thieves, people who were ostracized and marginalized. He came for drunkards and prostitutes and addicts. Now you hear that and you say, wow, you know, you're right. And I'm sure glad he came for those kind of people, those kind of messed up people who need Jesus. I'm sure glad Jesus came for them. But can I let you in on something? We're no different. Before God, you see, you and I are no different than the prostitute or the drug dealer. You say, really? I'm pretty upstanding. Don't take my word for it. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, 22 and 23, where he says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. For there is no distinction or there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, of course, we don't like to admit that, do we? We don't like to admit our lostness, and yet, as we're about to see, such joy comes to those who are willing to own their lostness and own their messiness. And so can I ask you a question this morning? Are you lost? Are you willing to admit that you're not where you should be? Brothers and sisters, or, or friends, if, if you can admit that, then there's good news for you. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. His rescue mission is focused on the lost. But there's something else about Jesus' rescue mission that I want us to see from this passage, and it's very simply this. Jesus' rescue mission is one that is initiated by God. It's important to note in this text that although Zach was, was eager to see Jesus, it's Jesus, not Zacchaeus, who took the initiative in arranging a personal contact between the two of them. You see, this is where I think we got to whack sometime. We want to make a big deal out of little Zacchaeus scurrying up a tree. And he did. But in verse 5, we're told that as Jesus passes by, it's Jesus who looks up at Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, 
hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. Here we're reminded of when Jesus called Nathaniel. In John chapter 1, verses 47 through 51, I just love this passage. It says that Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael says, How do you know me? And Jesus answers, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. In that same gospel, in the gospel of John, we find these words in John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, I submit to you this morning that when our Lord saw Jesus in that tree, that he knew that he was one that the Father had given him. And so he looks up into that tree and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. That word must communicates urgency and necessity. He was one that God had set his love upon before the foundation of the world. And Jesus knew that. And he says, you must, I must go to your house today. There's work to be done. I must bring the work of my Father to completion. And our, father, and our passage tells us that Zacchaeus does come down. He receives Jesus. And in verse 9, Luke tells, tells us that Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. You see, the Pharisees claimed that they were the only true children of Abraham. Jesus is saying, guess what, fellas? Tax collectors can be part of the kingdom as well. Let me just point something else out here. Not only did salvation come to Zacchaeus, but you notice what the text says? It says it came to his house. Here we have an example, I believe, of the deep biblical principle of the covenant. The salvation is not just for individuals. While that's true, it is also for families. I love what Philip Ryken says. He says, when grace comes to the head of a house, God is laying his claim on the entire household. In Genesis 17, verse 7, God said to Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. In Psalm 103, 17 and 18, in referring to that covenant, it was the psalmist who said, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children i.e. grandchildren, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. 
And then finally in the New Testament, in Acts 2, verses 38 and 39, we read these words, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. What was that promise that was referred to in Genesis and in the Psalms and in Acts, while by no means excluding the necessity of faith, when that faith is exercised, God promises that He will rescue children as well. I don't know about you, but as the grandfather of seven grandchildren, is that right? Yes, yeah, seven grandchildren. That gives me great joy just to know that I've been given that promise in God's Word. And guess what? So have you if you're His. That's a wonderful thing to rejoice in and to be thankful for. But what I want you to see here is that God didn't just sit back and wait. God sent His Son Jesus to live among us, to seek and to save the lost. It would cost Jesus everything. And soon, very soon, He would be delivered over to people who would mock Him and treat Him shamefully and spit on Him and beat Him and nail Him to a cross where He would die for the sins of His people. God took the initiative in all that. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit worked out a plan of redemption and it involved this guy, Zacchaeus. Last Saturday, I had the privilege of preaching the funeral of my last surviving aunt. She was 92 years old and she loved Jesus. And at the funeral, I shared about the time that I was at their home on a Sunday afternoon, and she came to me with a book that they were studying in her, in her Sunday school class at a local Southern Baptist church. And the title of the book was Chosen by God, by R.C. Sproul. And I can remember she walked in the room and I thought, wow, I wonder where this is going to go. And she shoves this book in my hand, and she said, have you ever read this? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, I said, where did you get this? She said, at Sunday school. She said, we've been studying this. And she said, can I just say something? I said, sure. And I thought, I braced. I'm getting my defenses up. And she says, isn't it wonderful that God set his love upon us before the foundation of the world? I couldn't help but thinking of those words on Saturday while I was standing by her grave. And I shared with those in attendance of what it might have looked like upon her arriving in glory and being met by King Jesus who took her by the hand, as it were, and led her to the Father, only to hear Jesus say, Father, look, it's Louise, another trophy, another sinner saved and a soul made perfect. Oh, Father, look what we've done. Is this not precious? You say, oh, but Steve, what about Zach here? It, it says he's seeking Jesus. And that's true. It does say that in verse 3. I love what Kent Hughes says in his commentary about this verse. Listen to this. The story of Jesus seeing and Zacchaeus seeking were both sovereign works of God. The crossing of their lives at the sycamore was a work of divine providence. It was a meeting that was ordained before the foundation of the world. It was the Puritan Matthew Henry that once said, Jesus brings his own welcome. He opens the heart 
and inclines it to receive him. Salvation came to Zacchaeus' house, friends. Let me ask you something. Has he come to yours? Has he come to yours? Jesus' rescue mission is one that is focused on the lost. It is one in which God has taken the initiative. And finally, Jesus' rescue mission is one that is marked by changed lives. Changed lives. God's mercy and his grace comes to us where we are, but it never leaves us where it finds us, but it changes us. It changes us. After Zacchaeus comes down out of the tree, he and Jesus start to make their way to Zacchaeus' house. And I know we shouldn't speculate here, but just, just allow me a little freedom. We've been locked up for a number of weeks here. I wonder what those two men talked about. I just can't help but wonder if, if Zach looked over at Jesus and said, look, Jesus, you, you say you want to come to my house, but you do know I'm a tax collector, right? <laughs> and most of the people in this town hate the fact that I get to breathe the same air that they get to breathe. I wonder if they talked about that. And if so, I wonder what Jesus would have said to him. I have a feeling that Jesus would have put his arm about him and said, let's get to your place, Zach. And so they go. And in verse 8, we find that they're in Zacchaeus' house. And it's there that we get our first take on the change that had come over Zacchaeus. It must have been some deal. There were a lot of people there. And all of a sudden, Zacchaeus stands up in the middle of the room. And he says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. <laughs> what a contrast this was to the other rich guy we read about a few weeks ago. Remember that story from Luke 18 about the rich man who came to Jesus asking him about eternal life. And Jesus said, you, you have to leave and follow and receive. And the guy just couldn't do it because he loved his stuff too much. So he walks away. He walks away from eternal life. And Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. And yet it's not impossible because now here we are in this chapter and we read Zacchaeus of Zacchaeus who was also a rich man. And when he meets Jesus, he gives up half of his wealth. And Jesus didn't even ask him to. And furthermore, the people he'd ripped off, he committed to repaying them. Four times what he had ripped them off of. Now what's happened to this fellow? Jesus had saved him. And his life had begun to bear fruit. Suddenly those things that had so gripped Zacchaeus' life, he's now willing and able to let go of. All the things that he thought gave him identity and control, he just gives it all up. Why? Because now Jesus is his Lord. Two times in this brief text, he refers to Jesus as such, as Lord. You see, the powers of, or the power of the idols in his life have been broken by the power of Christ's love and Christ's grace. It changed the man. He had, in the words of the Apostle Paul, become a new creature. The old things had passed away. New things had come. Now here's the deal. That's Zacchaeus. What I want to know is about you. 
Has your life been gripped and changed by the gospel? You say, well, I believe. I didn't ask you that. Has your life been radically changed by the gospel? You see, that's important. Because we sometimes think if we just believe there is a God and there is a Jesus, that we're okay with Jesus. And I'm telling you, you're not. In the 1740s, during the height of the evangelical revival known as the First Great Awakening, there were large numbers of people in the English-speaking world who claimed to have had encounters with God that led to a conversion experience. And in those conversion experiences, there were, as is often quoted, many strange behavioral manifestations and excessive emotionalism. Many Christian ministers were skeptical about all of these conversions. Jonathan Edwards, who was regarded as the greatest theologian ever produced by America, defended the Great Awakening as a true work of God. But Edwards was very, very concerned about these strange behavioral manifestations and excessive emotionalism. So what does he do? Like most theologians, he writes a paper. The title of which is like this long, I don't have time to quote. Let me shorten it for you. The shortened title is Distinguishing Marks. It talks about distinguishing marks of a person who has been truly converted. And I don't have time to give you all of them, but let me give you three. Edwards wrote, here are the marks. A conversion experience will raise a person's esteem of Jesus. A true convert will believe that Jesus came in the flesh and that he is the Son of God and was sent to God to save sinners, that he's the only Savior and that they stand in great need of him. They will have higher and more honorable thoughts of Jesus than they used to have and they will incline their affections more to him. That's just one. Number two, a true conversion experience will lessen men's esteem of the pleasures, profits, and honors of the world, listen to this, and take off their hearts from an eager pursuit after those things. And thirdly, a true convert will reflect a spirit of love to God and others. I don't know about you, but when I look at Zacchaeus, I would argue that that describes him pretty well. He's a man who had been changed. He had new affections for Jesus. The things that he once clung to, he said, I don't need them. And he had a spirit of generosity about him. Here, you guys need them? I'll just give it away. But once again, that's Zacchaeus. What I want to know is you. You name the name of Christ. Does that describe you? Does that really describe you? Have you really thought about such things? Which brings me in conclusion to how we can use this passage in the midst of the great lockdown of 2020. One of the things that I skipped over in this passage, and I did it intentionally because I wanted to save it until the end, was the response of Zacchaeus when Jesus called him. Did you notice what it says? It says that Zacchaeus came down and he received Jesus in verse 6 joyfully. Joyfully. Everybody else around him was grumbling, but not old Zach. 
he received Jesus joyfully. What was he joyful about? I would submit to you that the man was joyful over the sheer grace of God in his life. I love the story of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, who was talking to a man about heaven, and the listener was, was an unbeliever and decided he'd have a little fun with the poor, ignorant John Newton. And so he asked Newton to describe something that he thought would surprise him when he got to heaven. And Newton looked at him and replied, there are three great wonders of heaven that I will, be, that will, that will, that I will just be amazed at. And he says, what are they? He says, the first will be to see many, so many people there whom I didn't expect to see. The second will be to not find many churchgoers whom I did expect to see. And the third and greatest of all will be to find myself there, knowing what I know of the wickedness of my heart. You see, Newton had never gotten over the fact that Jesus had rescued him. Zacchaeus had never gotten over the fact that Jesus rescued him. Let me ask you something. Have you? We've been locked up for eight or nine weeks I don't know, but I, I, I've grumbled over that too much. And I've been convicted by this that I probably needed to spend more time during these last eight or nine weeks just simply marveling that I had, was lost and God took the initiative to find me. And just thank Him for that. How about you? Before your feet hit the floor each day, do you just thank God? that you're not waking up in hell somewhere. That God saved you and that you rejoice in that. I read a quote this week from John Piper that just stopped me in my tracks. He said this, he said, God sends recessions, and I would add the great lockdown of 2020, to yank up the roots of our joy from the pleasures of the world and plant them in the glory of His grace. It was Lewis who once said, and we have worn this phrase out, but it's so applicable to our situation, I've got to say it. Lewis said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies at a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let me ask you something this morning. Has COVID and the quarantine and what could be a recession revealed what's in your heart? Has God used it to reveal how out of sorts your life is? To show you perhaps that your life isn't where it should and needs to be. To show you how lost you are? And my dear friends, Know this, our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ is on a rescue mission. It is a mission that's focused on the lost. It is a mission in which God has taken the initiative. It is one that is marked by changed lives. Today, if you do not know Him, admit your lostness. Turn from your sin. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. And like Zacchaeus, Welcome him joyfully into your life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world. Lord, we ask that you would help us by the power, O oh God, of your Holy Spirit to see you for who you really are. That you are a God
who was pleased to set your love upon a people, that you were pleased to send your son to die for our sins. Oh God, I pray that for those of us who have been bought by the blood of Christ, that we would rejoice in what you have done. And for those who are without Christ, that you by the power of your spirit would come even now and convict hearts. Reveal the beauty of who you are, Jesus. That folks would welcome you gladly into, your li- into their lives and experience your life-changing power. This we pray in your strong name, O Christ. Amen.